0: We're in Matthew 5, so if you want to turn to Matthew 5, we're going to be uh, looking at Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. Um, I'm James, by the way, from uh, I'm one of the elders here. <laughs> we're in a series on Matthew, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we're preaching on a preach. Um, Jesus gathered his disciples to him, and he's preaching to his disciples, so he's, he's speaking to us. And also the crowds are gathered, so if you're, you're not, wouldn't you 're not going to call yourself a christian here today you 're just visiting and looking in, then just like the crowds were listening in to jesus you 're very welcome to be here and be, be listening in too and uh, we 're coming this morning to to break bread uh, together, um, and it, this really speaks into uh, why we do that and it 's the beginning of a series of statements in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, "You have heard it said." And then he repeats uh, something from the, the law, and and then he says, "But I say to you," there's a series of those teachings, and Jesus has already said, as Rod was preaching last week, that Jesus has not come to abolish the law. So why he what he's not saying is, you have heard it said, "Do not murder," but don't worry about it. Do what you like. The Lord, don't worry about the law. Just do what you'd like. He's not uh, obviously saying that. But Jesus has come to fulfill the law. He's come to fulfill the meaning of the law, of the whole, not just the law, really, the whole of the Old Testament. You know, Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus, and he leads his two friends through this wonderful Bible study, where he shows them through the whole of the Old Testament scripture, how he fulfills it. So Jesus has come to fulfill the law. The rest of the Old Testament really points us to Jesus. It's there to guide us, to help live like Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus fulfills the law by living it out perfectly, living it out in its full intention and heart. He's not merely just observing the rules. You Think of the times where Jesus corrects people because they're saying, yeah, but the rules say this. And Jesus says, yes, but the heart is this. He fulfills it perfectly in intention and heart, what the law is really getting at. And then wonderfully, by his spirit, Jesus gives us new hearts with new desires to obey him from our hearts, not just merely observing outwardly the rules. And he empowers us by his spirit for us to fulfill the heart intention of the law from our hearts. Jesus isn't adding to the law. He's not taking away from it. What he's doing is revealing its full intention. He's taking us deeper into the meaning of the law and helping us to live it out. So we're in Matthew 5. Verses 21 to 26. No PowerPoint today. Apologies about that. Um, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, by the way, that is one of the most incredible lines in the whole of the Bible, isn't it? But I'll get on to that a bit later. It's just amazing. I just wanted to stop and acknowledge that is an incredible, outrageous thing to say. For a human being to say, just should stop us in our tracks and go, whoa, as it did the crowds when they were listening. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Saying the same thing three times. And he gives these two examples, one to a about a brother who's also a disciple. He says... So if you're offering your gift at the altar, an act of worship, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, stop what you're doing, and go. First, my number one priority, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Then, second example, somebody beyond the disciples' community. Come to terms quickly. Come to terms quickly. Quickly, with your accuser, while you're going to court with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you have paid the last penny. Just going to structure this a little bit differently today, and just ask six questions about this passage that helps unpack what Jesus is meaning here. Let's uh, just pray before we do, shall we? Holy Spirit. We ask you to come. Lord, we want to hear your voice this morning. We don't want to go through the motions, just understand another text. Just listen to me. We want to hear your voice to us personally. So we pray. Come be here with us. Expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts Stir them up and help us deal with them by your spirit, speaking to us, convicting us of our need for Jesus and his mercy and convicting us to live differently. Holy Spirit, come and do a work in us, we pray. Amen. So first question, it might seem an obvious one, why is murder wrong? Why is murder wrong? In Genesis 9.6, it says this, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Exodus 21.12, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Which looks contradictory on the service. You've killed somebody, so your life's going to be taken. But there's something so precious about uh, taking someone's life that there's a consequence for it. Why is it wrong? Well, those passages, that first passage says it's because humanity is made in God's image. We're made in God's image. We're made like him. We display as humanity something of the goodness of God amongst us. As we look at one another, we see something of the goodness of God. We were made to be a physical representation of just how good God is in the world. And we were to become the home and the dwelling place of God himself. So therefore, we have value as those who are made in God's likeness. And so an attack on a person is not just an attack on that person. It's an attack, too, on God himself. Because it's an attack on his image. So we have value because we're made in his image. And that's everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're old or young or in the womb. It doesn't matter whether you're educated. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, black, or white. All of us are made in the image of God, and therefore we have value. And honestly, I know people say it's wrong to murder, but I don't know any reason beyond that we're all made in the image of God. that's a good one, and that has a solid foundation for why you shouldn't do that. It's because we're made in the image of God. And so there's a consequence for murder. You might remember the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Cain gets jealous. Um, against his brother, he gets angry with him. His, the anger doesn't, he doesn't get angry for a moment, it consumes his heart, his inner self. He doesn't master his anger, he doesn't rule over it, and so his anger masters him. And that's the case with anger. If you don't master it, it masters you. And the anger m- masters Cain, and he ends up murdering his brother. And then the Lord comes to Cain and he says this, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I.e., your brother's blood is crying out for justice to me. There's got to be a consequence for this wrong done, this grievous wrong against your brother Abel, but also against me. The the blood that's crying out for the ground demands God's response out of his goodness And out of his sense of justice. And then God goes on. And now you are cursed from the ground. Consequence. Which has opened its mouth to receive your beloved's blood from your hand. When you work the ground. It shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive. And a wanderer on earth. So murder is wrong because we're made in the image of God. The second question. Why is anger wrong? Says verse 22. But I say to you. Yeah, by the way. But that has got to be the most amazing word in the whole of Scripture. The most astounding word. Jesus' authority is utterly incredible. This is the word of God he's speaking about. It's an outrageous statement. I mean, he really is putting his life on the line when he says this in front of crowds. And what's the amazing thing is Jesus offers No supporting documents, no reasons, no argument, no justification, no scriptural support. He places himself as the author and authorised interpreter of the word of God. His words are equal to God because he is God himself in human flesh. And he's the one who provides full understanding of the intention of this aspect of the law. Wow, what authority he's speaking with. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The heart of the matter, Jesus says, is the matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And the heart of murder is anger, like Cain's. Murder is just really the tip of the iceberg. What's underlying is an inner issue, an inward issue in our hearts that needs dealing with and that inner issue is anger. It's not merely about outward observance to a rule, don't murder but a heart motive it's about what's going on inside of us that no one else can see no one can tell well I mean if it comes out of you it's sometimes pretty obvious isn't it and it causes great damage but the initial feelings, nobody knows is going on except for of course God who looks on the heart and sees us and anger can have ugly consequences can't it It ongoing anger can lead to resentment bitterness, slandering reviling others speaking badly of others, it can do huge damage can cause real hurt, real pain in people It can actually shape how they think of themselves. James says this about it in chapter 3, 8 to 10. He says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's how he describes hurtful words deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Same reason made in God's image. And therefore anger and angry words are wrong. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So James says we shouldn't use our words to curse, revile, slander, hurt others. Because we're all made in the image of God. It doesn't just offend the person we speak about or those who hear us say it. It offends God himself. Because the person we're speaking about is made in his image. And there's a representation of what he is like. No, ma- no matter how much that image is tainted and flawed in that person. Third question that follows on then. What about Jesus' anger? Right? Isn't it possible to have righteous anger? Didn't Jesus call people, you vipers? Didn't he flip over tables? Once when I was teaching RE, a kid had flipped over a table in my lesson. And afterwards, once he'd calmed down, we were having a conversation and issuing his consequence, obviously. What was going on? (laughs) He was clever enough to say, yeah, but you you said Jesus flipped over tables and he's perfect. And I (laughs) said... "Yeah." He was listening, which I was really chuffed with. But when people made in God's image wrong God and wrong others, as opposed to loving them and loving God. Anger, in response, is an appropriate emotion in the moment. It is an appropriate emotion. Why is that? Well, something sacred, the image of God, has been desecrated. And actually, therefore, it's a right emotion to feel. Romans 1 and Ephesians 2 talk about God's anger against evil, about the evil of not loving God and not loving others, about hurting others. And it says that God is rightly angry seeing this evil destroy and hurt those who are made in his image. He hates it. And God is rightly angry. I wonder how you feel when you hear that, that God is angry. He hates things. He hates this. That can be a problem for some of us. We hear God's a God of love. Surely the opposite is anger and hate. He can't be both at the same time, surely. Have a listen to this just as a short kind of answer to that. One writer says, The holiness of God is at war with all bitterness, hatred, and hurting. And where divine holiness collides with our hostility, the crash is called the wrath of God. God's wrath is God's war of love against everything gratuitously hurtful. God's love would not be love if it did not work to remove all that ungraciously hurts. The wrath of God does not disprove. It proves the love of God. Because we're made in his image, we too experience the same, rightly experiencing the emotion momentarily of anger when we see the injustices in the world of people not loving God, of people not loving one another. And we're right to feel that emotion. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians, which I'm going to read later, be angry. He actually commands it. So to be angry at times can be a good thing. An appropriate thing. Fourth question then. So why does Jesus say we're wrong to be angry then if there is a type of anger that's okay? Why does he say here anyone who's angry is liable to judgment? Why does he say that? Jesus uses a bit of grammar, a present tense participle. He's saying everyone who is angry, which reads everyone who is being ongoingly angry, carrying anger around with them, remaining angry nursing a grudge. This is not, he's not talking about a passive, momentary feeling that because we're made in the image of God, we feel in the moment when we see the injustice against others or against us. What he's talking about is a decisive, active, ongoing anger which consequently hurts others. When we choose not to master that momentary anger, it masters us, and therefore it hurts others, just like Cain hurt his brother Abel. It bears no good fruit. In fact, in James somewhere he says, it doesn't, it, the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. It bears no good fruit And God urges Cain in that story in Genesis 4, he says this, sin is crouching at the door. He's imagining this kind of like beast or lion, kind of crouching at the door, waiting to pounce on you and rule over you and master you. That's what he's describing. He says it, God says to Cain, "It's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Ephesians, Paul says the same, be angry. That's a command. There's something loving and appropriate about it. And do not sin. You can be angry for the moment, but then don't go on sinning. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it internally and appropriately. And I'll talk a bit about how we can do that a little bit later. Don't know why that's on. And then he says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't let him get in the door. Get between you and other people. Don't let it snowball and get out of control and hurt others. And the the passage we've just read, Jesus says, first be reconciled. Immediately. First thing you need to do is decide to try and go and be reconciled with that person in whatever way. To take action. Email them quickly. Just say, you're up for a coffee sometimes. It's something I'd love to talk to you about. If they're actually there in person, just say, hey, can I grab a chat just for a minute? If you think you can. You've got to deal with the anger, haven't you? But one of the ways to do it is to say, I want to be reconciled to you. Or in verse 25, it says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Somebody is accusing you of something, be quick to try and resolve it with them. Don't let anger simmer. Go first to your brother or sister. Try and be reconciled. If you need to apologize, apologize quickly. If you need to forgive forgive if they've done something wrong to you and go in humility there are times when we can be angry out of our own presumption, out of our own misunderstandings maybe because there's something the other person's thinking that's just missing from the way that we're thinking about the situation so it's always good to come in a the, in the situation just say you, you know you said this or you did that it came across like this and I just felt hurt by that what, was, what were you thinking? You know, what was going on in your... And just come in humility and gentleness to them. Fifth question then. Why is Jesus telling us to do, not to do something he did? This is the one I'm going to spend the most time on. Why is Jesus telling us not to act out of anger when he did exactly the same thing in the Gospels? And this whole series is called Live Like Jesus. So surely I could go around flipping tables and calling people vipers and so on. Three reasons why it's ungodly and unhealthy to act out of anger. First, we ourselves have angered God. We ourselves have angered God. We're like God, made in his image, but we're unlike God because we're not holy, perfect, righteous. He is. He's made us so. Because he's given us his righteousness. But we weren't originally, were we? We were objects of wrath, it says. We had angered him. And we're not like Jesus, who was without sin. Because we have sinned against others. And against God. We're not innocent like Jesus was. I.e., like we've sinned. And blood has fallen to the ground. And it's crying out from the ground for justice. And God in his goodness and justice needs to respond to what we have done wrong to him and to others. And what ongoing unfiltered anger can lead to is us being essentially blind to our own sin because our eyes are on other people. We're on their wrongs, their faults, their sins. And they're off our own. And we can become indignant. Indignant which might be one of the most permissible sins in churches these days, being indignant. It ends up being a mask for all the things that we've done wrong, makes us blind to it. Indignation is not the language of love. Philippians 4 says, The Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known to man. The Lord is at hand. Where the Lord is present, reasonableness is at hand. And what ends up happening is we play the comparison game. And before you know it, we're measuring ourselves against somebody else's sin rather than God's holiness and perfection. And it lacks the humility that we may be wrong in the situation. We may have missed something. Not quite got the things right. It's inappropriate. It's hypocritical. It's self-righteous for us to carry anger around towards others when we're deserving of God's anger ourselves. That's the first reason. The second reason is it tempts us to slip into the into God's judgment seat. It tempts us to put ourselves in his place. It's not our place. We're not the judge, jury, and executioner. It's not our job to bring justice in the world. Remember that um, story that's told of Jesus? It seems to have been in tradition where... Um, Jesus, there's a crowd gathered to stone an adulterous woman. Jesus comes amongst the crowd and says, you who's without sin, cast the first stone. And you can imagine the story, just each of them, one by one, dropping stones and walking away. Except Jesus. He's the one left with her at the end. Because he is without sin. And he can cast the first stone. And one day when he returns, he will. He's going to return to judge the living and the dead. Us casting stones is hypocritical. It's judgmental. It's toxic to relationships. It separates from others. It gives the devil the opportunity to get between us and divide us, which is the enemy's plan. That's what he aims to do damage the church and divide it and split it. That's why church splits happen. Not because one person was right and the other was wrong. Probably because both of them are wrong. They let the devil have opportunity. He wreaked havoc in the church and it ended up splitting. And chances are you probably, if you lived long enough, known of that kind of situation in a church. James says this. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So whilst it says, says, first be reconciled, come to terms quickly, there's also a, be slow to speak. You might just need on that first occasion when you go to your brother or come to terms with your accuser, just to listen. Just say, I just need time to process that. You may well still be really angry yourself. And rather than acting out of anger, be slow to speak. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. It's okay to take time and just say, I just need time to think that through. Maybe go to it with somebody else and anonymously talk about the situation and how you're finding it. And allow them to speak into your life and try and help you process it and think it through. And what's more, in the here and now, Romans 13 tells us, doesn't it, that God has appointed earthly governments, kings and so on, to express God's justice in the here and now. God's judgment in the here and now. And it's to point us to the day when Jesus judges the living and the dead and nothing is left unpunished. I mean, that's the confidence we can have as Christians. Nothing that, no injustice that happens in the world is going to go unpunished. Either people will still receive the wrath of God or it's been poured out on Jesus on the cross. That's a great confidence and security Every wrong that's been done by you and to you will not go unpunished by God. His goodness and his justice and his love demands a consequence and a response. So it's right for us to bring evil and injustice to the attention of the authorities, but justice isn't down to you and me in the here and now. Paul Paul says exactly the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. He says, therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, that he returns, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things now hidden. Some of you are living with things that have hurt you that nobody seems to know about. Maybe you told the authorities and nothing was done about it. Maybe you told friends, perhaps people didn't believe you. Perhaps there was no consequence in the moment. But God sees everything and he'll bring to light everything that was hidden in this life. And we'll disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. That's the second reason it slips us into God's judgment seat. Final one. Thirdly, why is Jesus telling us not to do something he did? Third, it totally ignores the cross. It totally ignores the cross. On the cross, Jesus absorbed in himself the fullness of God's righteous anger and wrath against all the evil and injustice in the world, all the ways in which we have not loved God and have not loved others, all the hurtful words, all the angry thoughts, all the self-righteous indignation, so that God's wrath could be poured out on Jesus on the cross and could be turned away from us. By faith in Jesus, if you're a Christian here today and you put your trust in him, Because of what he's done, we will never experience what we truly deserve, which is the anger and the wrath of God. And in light of that, we'll come to celebrate in a moment when we break bread. Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us on the cross. In light of that, the question, why does Jesus do something that he tells us not to, completely dissipates just doesn't become a question even more it reveals the inappropriateness of our anger our ongoing resentment bitterness when we've been shown incredible mercy incredible mercy can you imagine the wrath of god against all of your sin imperfection, your unrighteousness, your faults, your failings, every angry thought, every angry word, every time you've hurt somebody else, God's pouring it out on you. For, his, for, for justice and goodness sake, for the, for the love of God, pouring it out on you. And yet Jesus has stood in the way. It's been poured out on him. The mercy God has shown us in Christ Jesus. To then go and pour it out on somebody else, when he's shown us mercy in Christ, to then go and let them have it, it's just so inappropriate. So wrong. Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant, doesn't he? He forgives a servant of his debt, and that servant goes away, meets with somebody who has a debt against him, and he doesn't show mercy to them. Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, you won't be forgiven yourself. One of the fruits of knowing the grace and mercy of God is our own forgiveness and mercy towards others. If we're not merciful towards others, it's a real, you know, warning light, big flashing light. Do you really know the mercy of God if you just let other people have it? It's so at odds with his wonderful, loving, gracious mercy towards us in Christ and what he's done on the cross as we're going to celebrate in a moment. Final question to land. How then do we extinguish anger? This is hard, isn't it? Because I can think of times, not, not too distant past, where I have felt intense anger. I felt horrendously grieved. People have behaved outrageously to me. And I've got quickly angry. And I've got a decision to make in that moment. Do I get self-righteous about it? Do I let resentment grow? Do I let bitterness in? Or do I go and be reconciled and come to terms quickly with how I'm feeling about it? Do I deal with it and remind myself of the mercy of God? We all have those moments, don't we? unless you're a hermit, never talking to anyone. (laughs) Otherwise, you always experience this. This is common to all of us. So how do we extinguish it? Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, that it may, may give grace to those who hear. Do we want to live in a grace-filled church. Is that the kind of place you want to live? That is, isn't it? So Paul instructs us and tells us, this is a command, it's an imperative. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Ever. Ever. But only for the building up as fits the occasion to build one another up in love give grace if you want to like populate church family with grace which makes people glad it says in the scriptures you want to be a joyful people give grace by speaking well of others so if you hear and this is i think this is an indictment on any christian in any church at any time If you hear somebody talking in a way which is not gracious, is not loving, speaks badly about another person, you need to try and think in the moment, that is deadly poison. That talk is the kind of thing that wrecks churches, hurts people, damages us. And just say, have you gone to the person and talked about it? Just remind them of the scriptures. It says, first, go and be reconciled. Have you gone and talk, talk to them about it? Have you read the story of Cain and seen what happened when he didn't get hold of his anger? Don't let it go before the... Don't deal with it before the sun goes down. Or Matthew, Matthew eighteen fifteen, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, first, go to him. If somebody wrongs you, don't talk about it with other friends. Don't share it with your family. Don't talk about it in life group. Jesus says, first, go. Be reconciled. Tell your brother or sister what they've done wrong against you. That's the first thing we should do. And even if it doesn't go how we planned, that's not an excuse for us to talk badly about the person. Just like Jesus has absorbed our sin, sometimes we have to absorb the sin of others, don't we? They've hurt us, the injustice is still there, and you just have to absorb it. That's the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. You don't, God does not give us opportunity to just let them have it. Uh, Secondly, pray for those who hurt you. Later in this chapter, Jesus says this, But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you or hurt you. Forgive them, be kind to them, be gentle, be tender-hearted, and I'm preaching to myself here. You, some of you, have probably experienced times when I've not been particularly tender-hearted and kind. We all do it, don't we? But that pray for them. It changes your heart when you go to God in prayer for the person, even though you're angry with them. It has the power to change your heart because God impartates something of His heart for the person and helps us deal with it. Third and final thing: break bread great bread, and remember the mercy of God towards you. So just as we uh, do that, should we um, just quieten ourselves before the Lord and we'll just still ourselves before we do that? Uh, just a f- sorry, just a few notices before we do. If you uh, believe and have faith in Jesus, you're welcome to join us in eating bread and wine. There's gluten-free on the front tables um, and there's some at the one at the back as well. Um, let's quiet on ourselves uh, before the Lord and just allow the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us Lord this is a this is a hard one to live out this is a hard one to live out when you've been hurt When you're rightly angry in the moment, to deal with it and master it is a difficult thing to do. Thank God. Thank you, God, for your spirit who empowers us to do what's miraculous, really. Pray, Holy Spirit, just come now and speak to us. Speak to our hearts, just enlighten us. Maybe there's deep anger in some of us that actually we've never really dealt with. We're resentful and bitter towards the person. It happened a long time ago and we've just never really dealt with it. It's always there. It erupts from time to time when somebody stirs the pot, as it were. Lord, just come and reveal those things to us so we don't go on living with them. 1 Corinthians, when it talks about the Lord's Supper, says, examine yourself. Lots of people interpret that kind of casually, is examine your own sin. What it's really saying is examine your attitude towards others. Lord, just come and speak to us now. How are our attitudes towards other people? Are there people we think badly of, or angry towards, resentful of, bitter, just being unkind to? Just impress it on us now. Put the people... Bring the people to mind. Before we come to break bread, folks, it's imperative we take decisive action right now to decide what we're going to do about being reconciled with that person. So decide in your mind, what is it you need to do to be reconciled attempt reconciliation with somebody who has wronged you and hurt you what are you going to do about it might not be possible to do it probably won't be possible to do it now but what are you going to do just we're going to go up to the table in a moment And just eat bread and wine together. Just go with someone. Don't break bread alone. It's a family meal. And can we pray for one another to receive the power of the Spirit to help us live this out? Some of you are are thinking, my life, how on earth am I going to have that conversation? For some of you, it's people you've not seen for years. You're not even in contact with them anymore. They're not even part of your life. How am I going to do that? Maybe it's just you need to forgive them in your heart. Maybe they're not here anymore. We need the Spirit's power and help to help us to live this out. So, um, Lord, we pray, just as we break bread now, would your Spirit come, as we drink wine, would you empower us with your Spirit to live out what only we can do with your help as we forgive others as we look to be reconciled to others who've genuinely really hurt us, and it still very much pains us when we think about it. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.